Well, happy Sunday, everyone. It's so great to see you. I always say happy Sunday. I, uh, here's a little st- a funny thing for you, just a, a piece of trivia behind the scenes. I used to always tell the staff, we do staff meeting Tuesday, and I always used to say to them, hey, staff, thanks for coming. And, uh, you know, and they looked at me one day and they said, we didn't really have a choice, right? <laughs> And uh, so now we switched up that phrase. Now I just say happy Tuesday. So we, staff meeting doesn't start until I say happy Tuesday. And then Ralph just feels like, you know, that's the start of the week for Ralph. So he loves it. So happy Sunday to you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> You're like, what do we do with this? I don't even know, right? Like, so it's good. Uh, where's all my organized, methodical, strategic planners? Where's all the people that you like to do things the right way? Anyone you like to do things the right way? Anyone here you live with someone who likes to do things the right way and you love to mess with them? You're the one who's just always turning things and making things out of place and opening things, leaving the lights on, right? You know who you are, the people who don't do things the right way. I I, have a little survey to do. What is the right way, actually? Sandwiches. How do you cut a sandwich? Do you cut it diagonally? Do you cut it down the middle, like in, you know, in a square? Do you cut the crust off? Where's all the diagonal people at? Yeah, okay, where's the people that cut it, like, straight up and down, down the middle, cut it in squares? Okay, where's the people that cut the crust off, right? We can all agree you're wrong, okay? Just saying. But when you get those triangles, I love the diagonal. It's something about the point is the best part. It's the best bite, the, the point. It's like pizza, the sandwich. You just need a little triangle. It tastes better. How about corn on the cob? Anyone? Where's all the typewriter people at? You're just like, you know, right? Where's the rolling pin people? Like, you're like the rolling pin. Now, I understand rolling pin, like, because you kind of get, like, handles on the end where you kind of, like, you eat the, where's, like, the, all the willy-nilly, just random, wherever the cob hits you in the face, that's where you bite it. Like, that's just, that's just so, like, I don't understand that. And then there's the people who cut it with a knife. Where's all the knife-cutting people, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Toilet paper. Age-old question. I'm going to answer this question for you today. You're going to hear it from the mouth of the preacher, the right way to do toilet paper. Toilet paper over the front? Over the back? On the back of the toilet tank? You just leave it there? (laughs) Well, studies have shown that 70% of people put it over the front. And the patent from the original toilet paper roll, which you can see right here, shows the paper over the front. So right from the very beginning, all the people in the front, you win. So if you have a a spouse or a family member or a roommate puts it on the back, they're wrong. There is a right way to do it. And, uh, And this isn't in my notes, but I was thinking about this this morning. Christmas trees, real tree, fake tree. How many know there's a right way to do things? Real tree, fake tree. Where's all the fake tree people at? Your plastic trees and like, oh, like, yeah, okay. We won't go there. But here's what I've discovered. No matter how well organized you are, no matter how strategic, no matter how planned out or ordered you try to live your life, no matter how much you try to do things the right way, whatever right way means to you, this is what I've discovered. You can't always control or predict everything that's going to happen. How do you know that there are life circumstances that don't always go the way you expect? There are people who don't always interact with you in the way that you uh, predict that they will. There's always someone who's going to do something or say something that's going to throw you for a loop. Have you ever been thrown for a loop? 
thrown for a loop. That's a phrase that we, that we mean like when, when the unexpected or the unimaginable happens and you sort of get thrown off your guard, the unpredictable or the unexpected, and it can leave you kind of disoriented. Now, in my process of uh, discovering that God was leading our family here to Bethel, I did a few other interviews with some other churches. And uh, usually the interview process, for you that don't know, uh, usually they're bored, there's a search committee, a number of, a small group of people from a church, and they'll sort of do like a first interview and kind of get to know you a little bit, get to know your personality, what you're about, and then they'll decide whether they want to continue that process, want to invite you to an in-person interview. And uh, so during that process, I had a couple different interviews uh, besides Bethel, uh, although Bethel was the best interview, as you can tell. But in this process, uh, this one church, they had asked me to send them some answers to some questions that they had, and they just, one of the questions was, what books have you read in the past year? They wanted to know what kind of leader I was, and, you know, they wanted to make sure I wasn't just reading Dr. Seuss, and, you know, kind of, they wanted, you know, how are you growing as a leader? And so I gave them a list of books that I had read in that year, and in my interview, uh, one of the people in the search committee uh, said, oh, I saw that you read this book. It was on this list of questions you gave me and they asked me tell me why I should read that book now how many know when I'm doing a job interview for a pastoral role I prepared I've thought through questions but tell me why I should read that book wasn't one of the questions that I had prepared for it didn't really seem applicable to like the job interview getting to know me and uh, and it threw me for a loop so bad that like in the moment I totally blanked. This is like a Zoom interview at this point and I'm sitting in front of the camera going, uh... Like, I can't even remember what the book was about at this point, right? And I'm looking at Holly, and I'm trying to make some stuff, stumbling through it that totally threw me for a loop. And I thought for sure when we got off that interview that I had bombed so bad, they're going to think that I lied, that I read the book, right? They're like, that guy didn't read the book. He didn't even know what to say. It just threw me for a loop. Have you ever been thrown for a loop? It's life circumstances can throw you for a loop. People can throw you for a loop. How many know sometimes God throws you for a loop? I want to talk about that for a little bit this morning. What do you do when God throws you for a loop? We've been in a series that we've been calling Altars throughout the fall, and we've been looking at significant moments of our lives and how God marks those moments with his promises, with his presence, with his power, how we can celebrate those moments as moments of faithfulness, blessing, and provision. And so we've been uh, orienting these uh, sermons around uh, Old Testament stories that revolved around the altar. And we can see at the altar in the Old Testament represented the intersection of heaven and earth. It was a place that God would meet with his people, that God would covenant with his people, where God's people would surrender and sacrifice and acknowledge their dependence on him. And so what we've been talking about this idea that we don't build altars so much to say. We don't have piles of rock and we don't have shrines that we build today, but we have an altar in our heart where we set aside space and time for the presence of God and connecting and communing with him there. And we've been looking over the last number of weeks, we saw that Abraham built an altar of covenant. We saw Joshua built an altar of celebration. Noah built an altar of new beginnings. We saw Elijah built an altar of worship. And then again last week, Pastor Kirsten taught us so well about the altar of prayer. This morning I want to talk to us about the altar of sacrifice. The altar of sacrifice. If you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 22, we're going to look at another story that features Abraham and this time his son, 
Isaac. Genesis 22, before we read it, it's a very famous story. But as we look at scripture, I think it's one of the most difficult stories to reconcile. It's one of the, the, the most difficult ones to understand and wrestle with. It, this chapter raises some questions that it doesn't necessarily answer as clearly as we might want, although we're going to try to address some of them today. And uh, while in and of itself it's an intense and action-packed story, we see that it actually is a forerunner. It's a foreshadowing of God's incredible grace to our lives. If you're uh, new to church or even checking out Christianity, I want you to know that, that the basic storyline of the Bible is set up in Genesis 1 to 11. We see in Genesis 1 to 11 that God created the world and he formed humanity to rule over the earth on his behalf and to live in relationship with him. We see almost right away that humanity rebels and allows sin into their life. We often think of sin as being the outward actions, uh, but really sin originates in our desire for autonomy from God. When we say, God, no thanks, I'm going to do things my way, and I'm going to lead myself, that is the, the heart, that's the nature of sin that produces those outward actions that we all know so well. I know better, I've got this. And so it results in the world spinning out of control. We see selfishness, greed. We see violence and destruction and corruption of what God had created. And so the big Bible question from the beginning to end is this. What's God going to do to rescue and restore creation? How's God going to fix this mess? That's the question of the Bible. And so we see in Genesis that God inserts Abraham. God chooses Abraham, and we read about it in week two of this series, that God calls him. He says, Abraham, follow me to the place that I will lead you to, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you land and a family, and you're going to become a great nation through your offspring, and through your offspring, all the people of the world will be blessed. This is God's plan of rescue and redemption, and we know looking back on it that it's through his lineage and his family tree that we see Jesus, the Messiah. You know, Abraham couldn't have understood what we so clearly see now, could he? He couldn't have clearly understood, but as he was listening to God's plan, he began to see some holes and some flaws in what God was saying. We see that uh, Sarah, and Abraham's wife, was unable to get pregnant. And as we come into this text, we see that Sarah and Abraham were teenagers. The teenagers, you know what teenagers are? Those are the, the older, mature people who are young at heart. They're teenagers, just a young 75 at the point of Genesis 16 that we meet them. Whippersnappers, just. And so for 25 long years, that was pretty like, <laughs> if you're 75 year old, let me hear you say amen. All right, there we go. So for 25 long years, they're awaiting God's promise. If you know, in Genesis 16, Sarah and Abe get tired of waiting. As they take matters into their own hands, they decide, you know what, we've got to make this happen. Abraham conceives a child through Sarah's concubine, Hagar, and Ishmael's born. But God, as he always does, comes through in his own timing, doesn't he? And Abraham and Sarah have their promised son, Isaac, which is really crazy. Because by the time he's born, they're 100 years old. 
I don't know if you know this, but the, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament is written anonymously. We're not under, we don't know for sure who wrote it. Some people think that Paul wrote it. Other people think that other people wrote it. We're not quite sure, but I know why it was written anonymously. Because whoever wrote it wrote of Abraham and Sarah that they were as good as dead. That's what I said. They were so old that they were as good as dead when Isaac was born. So they didn't want to put their name to that. But, uh, you know, there's prob- Abraham's probably in heaven right now going, who wrote it? God, who wrote it? I need to know. Who wrote me off as good as dead? <laughs> that would be a great birthday card. If I ever turn 100, would you write that in my card? Congratulations, you're almost as good as dead. If you're here today, we don't believe that. If you're pushing 100, if you're over 100, we celebrate you today. You got a lot of life left ahead of you. Eternal life, in fact. By the time we get to Genesis 22, we have Abraham and Sarah, and they're contentedly living life. They're settled in. They put down roots. They're blessed with their miracle child. They're living the dream. They're living the dream. All they got to do now is raise Isaac, marry him off, and then enjoy the grandbabies. How many of you are enjoying the grandbabies right now? I heard grandparenting is a reward of parenting. Yeah, the grandbabies. Fill them up with sugar, send them home, and enjoy a good night's sleep on your own. I know. I know. For all you young parents, I want to let you know it gets better. gets better, okay? You, you get sleep, you get, yeah, whatever. <laughs> You're lying to us, Pastor. It gets different, but it doesn't get better, no. And so here we have Abraham and I, uh, Sarah. They're just growing old. And they're watching the blessing of God unfold in front of them. This is the season of life they've been waiting for. The hard, hopeless, and waiting years are behind them. And then God throws them for a loop. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1 says this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much. And go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will show you. Abraham and Sarah, they're they're living the dream. They've waited decades for God's promise to be fulfilled and now they're watching their miracle child grow and then the same God who promised them the son is the same God who now wants to take him away. And if that's not twisted enough, God says, Abraham, I want to do it by your hand. Right? We look at that, we think, is this like some sort of sick joke? God, like what, what are you doing here? Can we all agree that we wrestle with this story for so many reasons? Like it sounds crazy. To be honest, it sounds wrong. It doesn't sound like the God that we know and see throughout the rest of scripture. I can't know exactly how, God, uh, how Abraham interpreted these tensions. What I do know is that human sacrifice, as appalling as that is to us today, is common practice among many of the religions and ancient practices. We see it in the history of the Mayans, the Aztec, through the early Egyptians, Romans, Greeks. We see that human sacrifice and child sacrifice is part of it. I don't know if it would be as shocking to Abraham as it is to us today. But this is what I know in Leviticus 18, a little while after this chapter, God specifically forbids the offering of human sacrifice. It was the custom of the neighboring nations and God says to the Israelites, you are not to do it, you're not to participate. We see in 2 Kings that there were some of the Israelites who did perform human sacrifice, child sacrifice to the God of Molech. And so we see that it's actually a tension. Maybe it wasn't as stark as a moral contrast as it is for us today. I don't know how Abraham interpreted this. 
But we're right to question this instruction, especially in light of God's later commandments and in light of the character of God that we see revealed through Jesus Christ. And so this passage doesn't sit well with us, does it? And so while we're looking at this this tough passage to reconcile, what we can clearly see, though, is that it seems as though God knew he was never going to do it. But what we see is the main point of this text is that Isaac represents that one thing you love the most, that thing that you treasure the most, that thing that you trust in the most. And so we see God asking Abraham, and what he's asking us today is, are you prepared to love me completely? Are you willing to follow me unconditionally? Are you willing to give me full access to the things of your life that you love? That's what he's asking us today. Really, in a nutshell, he's saying, is there anything that's off the table for you? Is there anything that's off the table for you? Is there any relationship you love so much? Is there a career that you've worked so hard to build? Is there a status that feeds your identity? Is there a habit or an addiction that you're unwilling to confront? Is there anything that's off the table for you? Jesus wants to take every good thing that's become a God thing in our life and ask us to offer it up as a sacrifice to him. I remember as a, as a teenager, I heard a preacher one time and she was preaching and she said, for me, holiness is curly hair. And I thought, holiness is curly hair. I mean, I've seen pictures of Ralph when he was younger. He had a full on afro. He was super holy then. But, uh, but, but I don't know now. I don't know what's happened, Ralph. Uh, holiness is curly hair. What do you mean? What she said to us was that she goes, you know what? She has super, like super curly hair. And she said, I'm so consumed with not having curly hair that I spend hours every day straightening it, every single day straightening my hair. And she said, I felt convicted that God was telling me I cared too much about what I looked and that I spent too much of my time on my hair. And so she felt for her that holiness meant living with curly hair and redeeming that time with other things. How many know that God isn't calling all of us to, to grow afros and you know, let the hair grow, right? And, uh, holiness is not holy, curly hair to all of us. But to her, he was saying, well, do you even surrender that to me? Well, here's what I see in this text. Number one, that we can expect tests from God. We can expect tests from God. James 1 verse 2 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. We've all heard of, of clinical trials or road tests, right? Tests or trials are, are, by definition, they're formal examinations meant to reveal the performance or quality of suitability of something, right? When, when you do a clinical test, a clinical trial, or a road test of, of a car or a product, you're trying to see how it performs, how the quality of it is. You want to inspect it. This isn't the first test by God that Abraham's faced. In fact, he's faced so many, more than his fair share of tests. And he's passed many of them. Some of them, like his son Ishmael, he's failed uh, miserably. But he's already demonstrated radical obedience to God. God said to him, as we read about a few weeks ago, leave the land, leave your father's house, go to the land I'll show you. And says that he went, he's left everything and everyone that was comfortable in his life. He's followed God and followed God's leading perfectly. Not, I mean, faithfully, not perfectly. 
There's been failures along the way. But as we read Abraham's life, and I know that it's a hundred years compacted into a few short verses, but it seems as though every time God knocked on Abraham's door, he was asking him to leave something good, to give up something he cherished, to believe for something impossible. I wonder if Abraham ever thought that God's calling, and I don't know if I want to answer it this time. Right? You ever get a phone call and you're like, yeah, I don't, every time they call, they, they need something or they want something. I don't know if Abraham is checking that and kind of thinking, you know, God, I'm 100 years old now. Like, enough is enough. Right? I've done my time. God, I've paid my dues. I've proven myself. He could have very possibly done that, couldn't he? But how are you, who at 100 years old, you want to say, God, I'm faithfully responding to God. I, I want to keep responding to God no matter what age I'm at. So Abraham, he still responds to God's prompting. I want us to know today that not every difficult experience in life is a test from God. Sometimes life circumstances are just difficult. Sometimes hurt and pain is a part of the human experience. Sometimes we put ourselves in positions that lead to difficult situations. Not everything is a test or trial from God, but sometimes they are. Scripture tells us that we should expect both tests and temptations. James 1 continues, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Remember when you're being tempted, do not say that God is tempting me. God never attempts to do wrong, and he never, he never is tempted to do wrong, and never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. And then these desires give birth to sinful action. How can we distinguish between tests and temptation? How do we know if it's God or if it's, if it's ourselves? I, I think tests that are from the Lord are used by God to bring out the best in us. When we're being tested, we're being tested to let go of something that's going to produce something else that's good in us. When we are tempted from our flesh, it's used by evil, it's used by the devil to bring out the worst in us, right? We're being tempted to lower ourselves. How many know that temptation is often logical and rational? When you're being tempted, you can think of reasons why you should give in to the temptation. You can think of reasons why this temptation would be a good thing to embrace. How many have experienced that when you're being tested by God, it's often illogical, right? It often doesn't make sense why we should step out in that direction. As we were getting ready for two services, I gotta be honest with you, I was taking some of the chairs away. You can notice some of them off the back wall are gone in case you didn't even notice that before, right? We didn't want it to feel like an empty cavern in here. As I was putting chairs away, I put about uh, 80 to 100 chairs in the back room and I kind of went around to the staff and I thought, staff, this feels so wrong. This doesn't make sense. How are we gonna grow by putting chairs away, right? This, uh, my, it, was a, it was like a, a, a test of faith, but I, it's been incredible since we've gone to two services. I know you don't get to see the other service as much, but we have grown exponentially since we've gone. It has been a stark contrast. Uh, we've been having over 400 people every week in our services. God is so good. But when God tests us, it doesn't really make sense. But when I'm being tempted by my flesh, I can think of a lot of reasons why it makes sense. And so this is what Warren Wearsby says. He says, God's testings are tailor-made for each child. The Bible says that we are all tempted similarly, but God's testings are individually and customized to us. 
How many know that God never asked Abraham's nephew Lot to endure the same things that Abraham endured? God tested Lot differently as Lot moved and he went into Sodom. We saw that Lot gave into temptation and he failed his testing in a different way than Abraham was tested. And this is what I've come to know is that the level of your testing is always proportionate to the size and weight of your calling. The level of your testing is always proportionate to the size and weight of your calling. Right? If you want to pass grade 9 math, you have a grade 9 math test. If you want to be a rocket scientist, you got to pass more than the grade 9 math test. How many know that's true? Right? The level of your testing is proportionate to the calling that God has for your life. You can expect tests from God. When you say, God, I want to be used by you, you're saying, God, sign me up for some tests. And some of you are like, okay. <laughs> but when you've met someone who's endured some things, who've gone through some testing of their faith and their courage, who have sacrificed, you realize that God has produced something good in them. Expect tests from God. Number two, focus on God's promises when you don't have God's explanations. This is hard for a lot of us. Genesis 22 verse 3 says, early the next morning, Abraham got up and he loaded his donkey and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance and he said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there and we will worship and then we will come back to you. If you have your Bible in front of you, you could circle or underline that word, we will come back to you. You know, when we read the story, Abraham's obedience stands out, right? In spite of how crazy it seems, uh, uh, he responded. But I wonder if this story is less about Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son and more about Abraham's trust in God to keep his promise. See, Abraham had been following the Lord's leading for a while. He's not a rookie. If you see all through the chapters, we see that he's been following after God. He's learned to trust God's character. And he's learned that God's, God has never failed him yet. I think Abraham obeyed readily because he truly believed when he said, we will return. I think he truly believed that. Genesis 22, verse 6. It says that Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, and he placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, he said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. So now either Abraham is leading Isaac on here, lying to him, or he's telling him the truth, that he truly believed God would provide the lamb. Uh, this is confusing to reconcile what God had promised through Isaac and now what God was wanting to do to Isaac. This is the place that Abraham's in. God, I know what you said you wanted to do through Isaac. You said I would be blessed and that there would be generations that would bless all people of the earth. And now I see what you want to do to Isaac and I'm trying to reconcile these two differences. How many know that God's will never contradicts God's promise? So this is the place that Abraham is in. But in the absence of explanation, he's focusing only on the one thing he knows. What did God promise? 
Focus on God's promises when you don't have God's explanations. Number three is this trust in the character and the provision of God. Verse nine says, when they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abraham built an altar and he arranged the wood on it. And then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord called him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Verse 12, don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. And so he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. I don't think this is a game of chicken. I don't think this is Abraham going like, okay, God, I'm ready. And God's kind of going, okay, let's see if you really are. It's not a game of chicken. I think Abraham's all in. Uh, they're not, Abraham was all in. It says, by faith, Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Here's why I think he was all in. The writer of Hebrews 11 says this about Abraham's faith. Abraham reasoned that if God, Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. As far as we know, there's never been resurrection. There's never been uh, rebirth. Uh, you know, there's never been the dead brought back to life at this point of history. We see it with Lazarus. We see it uh, with Jesus. We, I don't know what Abraham had ever seen it, but it says that he believed it. Abraham knew from the get-go that all of God's plans end in good, and if it's not good yet, he's not done yet. How many know that it can be frustrating waiting on God's provision, though? If you're like me, you probably know that God's clock isn't often uh, timed up to your clock. In fact, it often seems like God's not even in the same time zone that you're in, right? When we say to us that, uh, that, that God's not, is not, well, it seems to us that when God isn't on time, I want us to know today it's because God's not in time. God doesn't exist in the same realm. He exists in the realm of eternity outside of time. And here's where we get it wrong. I think that we often think of God swooping in at that last minute. As though God shows up in the 11th hour. I mean, we've even said that. God shows up in the 11th hour, right? But this is why I think that we get it wrong. It's not that God just shows up. Because God's always with us. It's not that he shows up at the last minute. He's been with you the whole time. I love in Isaiah 52, it says, The Lord goes ahead of you. Yes, the God of Israel will protect you from behind. Psalm 16, verse 8 says, The Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. In front of you, behind you, beside you, all around you. God's got you covered all the time. It's not that he shows up late. He's been with you the whole time. We can trust in him because of that. As we read this passage at first glance with our emotions, we put ourselves in the story and it's tempting to believe that this test is about Abraham's agonizing choice. It's my love for my son or it's my obedience to God. Would I be willing to sacrifice even my own child to prove my obedience to God? But I don't think obedience is the test. Abraham's already passed that test. He's left his father's house. He's, he's gone. I don't think sacrifice is the test. I don't think as we read the story that this is about Abraham willing to, being willing to do something crazy for God. 
God isn't saying to us, I want you to be willing to do something crazy for me. This test is about, do you know the character of God and trust in his provision? It's different. It's different. Here's the thing I love about this story. Abraham trusts that God could do it. He said, even if I sacrifice my son as God's called me to, I know that God can bring him back to life. How many love to try to guess what God might do? I think on this journey, Abraham's been rehearsing all, it says it's a three-day journey. He said, I, I know what God's asked me to do. He's probably thinking, why me, God? Why now? Why like this? He's probably saying, this isn't fair. This isn't what I wanted. He's probably trying to rationalize what could God be wanting to do in this and through this. He goes, you know, even if, even if God does call me to kill my son, I know he can bring him. So he's rationalized. He's thinking, God, what could you do? We know we often get it wrong, right? When we try to predict what God might do, right? I love in this story that God stops him and directs him to a ram. Can I encourage you today that when God throws you for a loop, when God throws you for a loop, hold on to his promises. Expect his provision. Hold on to his character. And lastly, I'm just so glad I'm sure Isaac was glad that his dad had learned not to hear from God and run ahead and, and you know, act on it. You know, but Abraham had learned at each step of the way to stay in communion with God. God, what now? How are you leading me in this moment? I want to keep my ears open. I want to keep my heart sensitive to what you're saying. I want to be listening with every step. God, what would you have me do now? So Abraham builds this altar, he lays down the wood and prepares the sacrifice of the thing that he had longed for, waited for, prayed to God for, loved the most. And in this moment, God meets with him in a significant and meaningful way. And God says, I don't want you to surrender this promise that I've given to you. I don't want you to give up this prized thing in your life. I actually want to give it back to you in a way that's going to be a blessing to you. And it says in that moment, Abraham named the place Yahweh Yira, or as we Latinize it, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. That's the lesson of the story. So God is our provider. As we're wrapping up, I want us to think of this story because we often talk about the faith and the obedience and the sacrifice of Abraham. But how about the obedience and the faith and the sacrifice of Isaac? Scholars would have us believe that Isaac at this point is somewhere between 12 and 25 years old. At 12, between 12 and 25, you're pretty, you know, scrappy, pretty quick. I don't know if you've ever, you know, if you, if you, some of us are getting a little older and you try to like, you know, take on your young kids, your teenagers. How do you know when you're 100? I think that Isaac probably could have got himself off the altar if he had wanted to. Somewhere along the line, he allowed his father to tie his hands. Somewhere along the line, and I don't understand it, he could have resisted, he could have ran. I think somehow he willingly laid himself, he had his trust in his father. How many of the God has no grandchildren? I think we look at this story as a test of Abraham's faith, and it was. I also think this is a lesson for Isaac who would carry on the blessing of his father Abraham. If you're in this place today and you are a youth, you're a young adult, I want you to know God has no grandchildren. 
There's no, you know, inheriting the kingdom of God through your family tree. There's no inherit, you don't pass it on. There's no estate. We all come to God based on our own merit, but we all, every generation needs to learn to trust in God for themselves. Every generation needs to learn the lessons of obedience and sacrifice. They need to learn the lessons of God's provision for themselves. Parents, grandparents, we could teach it to our kids. We can model it to our kids. How many of our homes are supposed to be incubators of faith? Our homes are incubators of faith where we model to our kids. We talk to them about the tensions of our life. We say, these are the difficult moments. We point back to the altars of our past and say, this is where God has met me. So Abraham says, Jehovah Jireh, this is the place where God did something significant in my life. And he walks through it, but he also walks through it with his son. The son is gonna be the carrier and the inheritor of this blessing. And so Isaac needs to learn for himself that God is his provider. If you look at the story, we've talked about this idea that this is a difficult one to reconcile. How does God ask this of Abraham? And whether he planned to go through with it, just the very fact that he asked it, we wrestle with that. And we often say to our kids, I'll never ask you to do something I wouldn't be willing to do myself. But we see in this story a foreshadowing. We see the son of promise. We see the son who was born miraculously at an appointed time. We see a son who is laid with the wood on his shoulders, carrying it to his own sacrifice. We see the son who was rescued by the lamb in the thicket. But how do we know Jesus himself was the son of God, who was promised, was born miraculously, who had the wood of the cross laid on his shoulders. But there was no rescue for the son of God. For the son of God willingly laid down his life for the rescue of you and for me that bore upon himself the sin of us all. God said, I won't do, I won't ask you to do what I wouldn't do myself. And instead, God took the place of you and me, that he became the lamb. I love as the, uh, John the Baptist saw Jesus appear on the scene, he said, behold, the lamb of God, the one who takes upon us the, the sin of the world. This sounds more like God to me. Not that he would expect to, us to kill our children for him, but that he would willingly take the place for us. You can trust in the character of the Father. You can trust in the provision of the Father. So I want you to know that when God puts you in situations of testing, it's not for your destruction, but it's for your growth. It's for your formation. And that when God throws you for a loop, and it seems disorienting, God wants to bring peace in the middle of it through his provision, through his promise. Would you stand with me this morning? We're gonna to pray together. We're gonna to worship a little bit and thank God for his faithfulness. Jesus, I thank you today. God, as we read this text, when we wrestle with it, God, we see in it the very heart and character and nature of our heavenly father, Lord, the one who loves us so dearly, the one who gives of himself so sacrificially, and I love that of Jesus, it says that no one takes his life from him, but he willingly lays down his life for us. And so today, God, whatever we are going through, whatever test or trial, God, that you're putting us through, God, whatever temptation we're enduring by the sin of our own nature, God, we can endure it because we know, Lord, that you've gone ahead of us and you're behind us and you're beside us. 
You've got us covered. Lord, I pray this morning for the person in this place, Lord, who needs that peace, who needs that reassurance, God, that they're going to get through this testing, that this testing won't be for their destruction, but it's for their formation. You're gonna form us into the people of God with strength and character and trust wholeheartedly in you. Lord, I know there's some people right now that are holding on to some things and, and their hearts are racing because they know that you're asking them to surrender it. They know, God, that they don't know how that will be. That we don't know what the outcome of that surrender or sacrifice will be. But God, we believe that in your character and in your goodness, whatever you ask for, from us, God, will lead to our growth, to our benefit. Lord Jesus, we just pray in this moment as we worship you, God, would you just fill this place with your peace and your joy and your presence today. Give us courage and boldness, we ask in Jesus' name.